smoked. The light was full on him. His face was sharp and clear in Maturin's telescope. And with a shock, the doctor saw not only that look of anxiety, but also the marks of age and unhappiness. Stephen Maturin had thought of Aubrey as powerful, resilient youth itself for so long that this change and the slow, weary motion as the distant figure closed the instrument and stood up, his hand pressed to an old wound in his back, were unusually distressing. Maturin closed his glass, picked the mushrooms, and whistled his horse. Ten minutes later he stood at the door of the observatory. Captain Aubrey's bottom now protruded from it, entirely filling the gap. Hola, Jack! Stephen! cried Jack, shooting out backwards with surprising nimbleness in so large a man, and seizing his friend by both hands. How very happy I am to see you! Old Stephen, how are you? Where have you been all this time? But recollecting that Dr. Maturin, as well as being a medical man, was also an intelligence agent that his movements were necessarily obscure, that his appearance might well be connected with the recent Spanish declaration of war upon France. He hurried on, looking after your affairs, no doubt splendid, splendid. You've moved the observatory. Yes. It was no great task, however. From here you can see the white and the solent, the tip of Gosport and Spithead. Quick, come and have a look. She'll not have moved yet. Stephen lowered his face to the eyepiece, shading it with his hands, and there, inverted on a pale luminous background, hung a misty three-decker, almost filling the disc. As he shifted the focus, she sprang sharp and clear into view. Why, it's not the victory, cried Stephen as the ship began to move. It is the Caledonia, I can see the Scotch arms. Jack, I can positively see the Scotch arms. At this distance... You're the speculum maker of the world, so you are. Jack laughed with pleasure. Well, you see, it is the purest day for viewing, he said modestly. Never a shimmer, even by the water's edge. Such life, such activity, and we Olympian above it all, said Stephen. Do you not spend hours and hours up here? I do, Stephen, I do indeed. But I beg you will not mention it at the house. Sophie, don't say anything, but it makes her low in her spirits to think I'm pining for the sea. Do you pine much, Jack? asked Stephen. But before Captain Aubrey could answer, their attention was distracted by a clamour from the cottage, by Mrs. Williams' hoarse, martial voice, the shrill, defiant replies of the servant she was rebuking. Jack shrugged his shoulders. Yet after a pause he looked benevolently down at his friend, surveying him. "'You've not really told me how you are, Stephen,' he said. "'How do you do, in fact?' "'Amazingly well, I thank you, Jack. "'I took the waters at Caldas de Bohi not long ago, "'and derived great benefit from them.' Jack nodded. He knew the place, a village in the Pyrenees not far from Dr. Maturin's high sheep walk. For Stephen, though an Irishman, had property in those parts coming down to him from his Catalan grandmother. As well as growing as supple as a fawn, continued Dr. Matcher, and I was able to make a number of valuable observations on the cretins of Bohi. Bohi is largely inhabited by idiots, my dear. 
Bohe's not the only place, not by long chalk, said Jack. Look at the Admiralty, and what do you see? A general, as First Lord, that's what you see. Would you believe it, Stephen? And the first thing this infernal red coat does is to take away one of the captain's eighths. He reduces our prize money by a third, which is stark raving lunacy. And then quite apart from the idiots in Whitehall, this village has half a dozen. They squeak and gibber in the marketplace. And in sober earnest, Stephen, I'm sometimes cruelly worried by the twins. They do not look over bright to me, and I should take it very kind was you to survey them privately. Oh, Stephen, what a wretched host I am. You must be clamped. Come in, come in. We'll have a glass of grog. This way. You don't mind walking through the scullery? No ceremony, eh? Sophie must be somewhere in front. The only thing in the scullery, apart from a vast copper in its smell of boiling baby clothes, was a young woman on a chair with her apron over her head, rocking mutely to and fro. Three paces carried them through it, however, into a narrow passage, and so to the parlour. A pleasant little room with a bow window, made more spacious by a number of sea-going devices, such as lockers under the windows and compact brass-bound ship's furniture, yet somewhat marred by incongruous great objects never designed for a cottage such as a high-backed cane seat for five or six people, and a long-case clock whose hood would not fit under the ceiling, and which therefore stood bareheaded in a corner, shedding desolation. Sophie ran in. She kissed Stephen with sisterly affection, and holding him by both hands, scrutinized him for his health, his happiness, and his general welfare, with a tenderness that went straight to his heart. Mrs. Williams walked in. Stephen rose to bow to ask after her health and that of her other daughters. A thump and a dismal howling above stairs called Sophie from the room, and presently Jack went after her. Stephen became aware of a snuffling behind the door. Now it opened, and a little girl with yellow hair and a heavy cold came bursting in. She stared at him with an arch look, then buried her head in her grandmother's lap. To Stephen's relief, all Mrs. Williams entreaties that she should stand up, that she should shake the gentleman's hand and give him a kiss, were in vain, and there she reclined while her grandmother gently stroked her hair. Mrs. Williams had never, to Stephen's knowledge, shown the least kindness to her daughters. Her face, voice, and manner were unfitted for the expression of kindness, yet here it was, glowing in her whole squat person, as she explained that this was little Cecilia the child of her middle daughter, who was following her husband's regiment, and who therefore could not look after her, poor thing. Sophie returned, and Stephen said, I'm strangely remiss, you must forgive me. I am come to beg you all to dine with me, and I've not yet delivered my invitation. I'm staying at the Crown in Petersfield, and I've bespoke a variety of dishes. Sophie asked how he could be so monstrous. He was staying at the cottage and dining there, too. Again the door opened, and both women eagerly turned to Jack. What stuff, said Jack. Stephen, you dine and sleep with us. The galley's all a hoo today, but there'll be a capital sea pie. Jack, said Stephen, I have bespoke dinner at the Crown. These dishes will be on the table at the appointed hour, and if we're not there, they will go to waste entirely. This remark he noticed had a striking effect upon the women. 
Although they still protested that he should not go, the conviction and the volume of their arguments declined. Stephen said nothing. Compromises made their appearance. Some should go, some should stay. Eventually, after a very long typical family discussion that often began again where it had started, it was agreed that Jack should go, that Stephen should return the next morning for breakfast, and that Mrs. Williams, for some reason, should content herself with a little bread and cheese. "'Nonsense, ma'am!' cried Jack, goaded beyond civility at last. "'There's a perfectly good piece of ham in the larder, and the makings of a monstrous fine great sea pie. "'But at least, Stephen, you'll have time to see the twins before you leave,' Sophie said. "'For the moment they're quite presentable. "'Pray show them, my dear. I'll be with you in a moment.' Jack led him up the stairs into a little sloping room, upon whose floor sat two bald babies dressed in fresh frocks. They had pale, globular faces, and in the middle of each face a surprisingly long and pointed nose, called the turnip to an impartial observer's mind. They looked at Stephen steadily. They had not yet reached the age of any social contact whatsoever, and there was not the least doubt that they found him uninteresting, dull, even repellent. They might have been infinitely old, or members of another genus. I cannot tell one from t'other, said Jack. You'd not credit the din they can kick up if things are not quite to their liking. The one on the right is probably Charlotte. He stared at them, they stared at him, unwinking. What do you think of them, Stephen, he asked. Stephen resumed his professional role. He had delivered some scores of babies at the Rotunda in his student days. But since then his practice